Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. As we turn the page in uh, this narrative, uh, I had thought we might pick up a little steam leaving behind the ten plagues. And we might make ourselves somewhere across the Red Sea. But as it is, according to the Lord's will and providence in my studies, that we will stop just short. We'll stop on the shore of the Red Sea this morning. We will only make it so far. And so we come back to the book of the Exodus here. The Lord continues to display His sovereign rule over all His creation but especially his directing of his people through the path he has ordained. This path that is for their good and his glory. So follow along as I read for us Exodus 14, and I'll be reading the first 20 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before uh, Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the son of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord." And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea, aside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened, So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. 
As for me, behold, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord God stands forever. Let us go to him again for help and prayer. O oh Lord, we ask now your help as your word has been read. You would work now through this clay vessel to preach it rightly, that it may serve your people well. They may be edified by its truth, strengthened in your spirit by the knowledge of their salvation in Christ, so that they may not lose heart, though the paths of their lives have many turns. You have directed all of them. May this be such for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're just a page ago, if you will. Pharaoh had seemed to understand the Lord, that the Lord is the one true and living God, the one whom no one can withstand. But now we see how quickly the mind of fallen man reverts back to his rebellious ways. It says that uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had a change of heart. They almost came to their right senses, if you would, or they came to their senses which were rebellious against the Lord. And with the cries of the Egyptian families probably only beginning to subside, maybe funerals having been finished or even funeral preparations just beginning, depending on how they were to bury these dead, Pharaoh looks again to destroy the Israelites. And so this morning, as I said, we make it to the edge of the Red Sea. In the coming weeks, we will cross with the Israelites on dry land and learn its lessons. But suffice for this day is pondering the realities of their current situation and reflect upon our Lord and then see how we may be encouraged in the varied circumstances of our lives. So what about when the Lord takes us into these difficult, even suffering circumstances, as the Lord here has taken the Israelites. As we will see, the Lord did not take him the direct route through the Philistines for his merciful purposes. Yet he doesn't also take them in a way that was easy to see the path forward, but he takes them up to a barrier. He takes them to the Red Sea. And not only that, it it tells us that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so now that he would come after the Israelites. What a situation the Israelites have found themselves in. What about us when the Lord takes us into difficult situations, even suffering situations? Do we wonder, is God going to keep me safe? Is God going to protect me? What does it mean to be protected by the Lord? God is always with his people, even in the barren wilderness. 
God traveled with the Hebrews by day and by night as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He is also with us even in times of distress and turmoil and suffering. And as we will see and recognize that when we look back, though not in the trial itself, but always after the trial as the Israelites will be able to see, they'll be able to see there was not one wasted footstep of their travel as we should be able to see in our life, that in every step of our life, whether it comes through pain and suffering or maybe even through lighter days, there is not one wasted step because they are all ordained for the purposes of God. We look at our passage this morning under two headings in order to get to where we want to be. We're going to look at it under the dilemma and the direction. The first part that we come to and we're met with is the dilemma of the Israelites. In verses 6 and 7, it says that uh, it details the Egyptian chariots. That not only does, is he to gather all his known forces or all his uh, arraignment and normal forces, but he takes all of his chariots. He says, get the reserves, set, set officers over them. This is to underscore the hopeless situation of the Israelites. It's probably the greatest fighting force in the world at that time. And this fighting force was preparing to pursue them and overtake them. The Israelites would have been accustomed to the prowess of the Egyptian chariot. They would have known of the battles over those 400 and. 30 years that they were in captivity, passed down from generation. They would have learned the history of the Egyptians. They were a part of it in some ways. Know the power of the Egyptian chariot. So to consider that it wasn't just 600 select chariots, but all other chariots of Egypt. What is being emphasized here is that there is no way out. There is no way out for the Israelites. They are not going to take up arms and fight against an army like that. And so it's for them to understand that they are in a helpless situation. And it says in verse 10, that as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. The Israelites on foot encamped by the sea with no means of escape. They saw Pharaoh approaching from the distance. The Egyptians were drawing near with evil intent. What was perhaps the most powerful military force of the time was nipping at the heels of God's people. In front of them lay the sea. Behind them lay the army of darkness. And from a human perspective, the situation appeared bleak and grim. No human power could save them. Our narrative continues in verse 11 where it says, They say to Moses, It is because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? The first thing we need to recognize is the Israelites' assessment of their position was not wrong when looked at with strictly the eyes of men. Their assessment was not wrong. Under, overestimating the power of the Egyptian army. Their assessment was not saying, 
we can do this if we just band together and try. They weren't overlooking some inherent power of their own. They were actually assessing it rightly, if only considered according to the eye of men. Verse 3 is a confirmation of this, for Pharaoh had the same assessment just from the opposite vantage point. They're sitting ducks. Let us go and take them. They're wandering aimlessly. Now is the time to strike. We may rightly ask, why did God place the chosen people in such treacherous and trying circumstances? Certainly the Lord could have conducted Israel far beyond the reach of Pharaoh and his army, even before the latter had set out from Egypt. Why did he not do that? The answer is not cryptic, but it's actually crystal clear. The Lord tells us that he was to be honored in the destruction of the Egyptians. And the implying flip side, the destruction of the Egyptians would be the deliverance of the Israelites. God desired to display his power in the salvation of, of his people so that he would be greatly glorified. What the Israelites were missing as they looked upon the, the Egyptians approaching them. And as they looked out on them with the eyes of men, they had underlooked, as you can't necessarily overlook God, but they underlooked God. And their eyes were focused on the temporal things. And they had forgotten that God is in charge of this situation. And that he was in charge of this situation for his own purposes and glory, as he said that he had set them apart as a son. That he would call them to be his people and he would be their God. Israel indeed is thrown into a flaming furnace, but God can make much of such circumstances for the lesson's main premise is that God is sovereign. It is he who places Israel in a difficult circumstance and who hardens Pharaoh's heart. He is in charge of the scene. We are watching a magnificent symphony being conducted by a superb master, by a superb conductor. The Lord is working out his plan before the Israelites, and yet they don't have eyes to see in this moment. Yet they had all the evidence they needed to believe that God was protecting them and that they would succeed in their escape from Egypt. Did they not just experience, if, if not witness, the ten plagues of Egypt? Did they not put, take the lamb and sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on their doorposts and on their lintels and hear as the angel of death passed in the night? Did they not, were they not given over many riches by the Egyptians to leave Egypt? They had all the evidences. Did they not have the testimony of the fathers, of the patriarchs, that the Lord would deliver his people out of oppression? Did they not have the bones of Joseph in their midst who said, take my bones with you when the Lord leads you out of this land? They had all the evidence they needed to believe that God would protect them. 
and that they would succeed in their escape from Egypt. Yet their focus was on only what they could sense, only what they could see and hear. It was not the eyes of faith that they looked upon these things, but it was the eyes of the flesh. And so they cry out to the Lord. They say some pretty blasphemous things. It's, it's understood that they were probably speaking sarcastically, and, and they said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt, knowing that the Egyptians were consumed with digging graves in the afterlife? They had ceremonies and embalming. They had, they had strict uh, ways in which they handled dead bodies, in which they embalmed them. And then we know that kings of Egypt were entombed in the most glorious ways. Certainly there were graves in Egypt for them. They knew it. And then the top or the bottom of their rebellion. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In other words, it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than serve the Lord and die according to his purposes. The Lord does not respond to them how I might have responded to them, how sometimes I respond to my own children when they come to me with such obstinance. He responds to them as a gracious and gentle father. Yet, he responds to them with direction. He doesn't just chastise them and discipline them. He gives them direction. It was God's original intent that Israel should take exactly the route which they actually followed. Not only is this evident from the fact that the pillar of cloud led them each step of their journey to Canaan, but it was plainly intimated by the Lord to Moses before the exodus took place. So we can see where the Lord led them and how the Lord led them. Where the Lord led them was with the Egyptians at their backs and the sea at their front, Where would the Lord direct them? In verse 15, the Lord answers their question. In verse 15, the Lord says, The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. The Lord's answer to Moses' probably silent prayer was, Go forward. Go through the sea. Here is our God calling his people to keep moving forward. What would be the basis of moving forward in such dark prospects? The basis and foundation would not be that they would know of some, let's say, full temporal safety. For even though the Lord brings them through on dry land, it is not that we now assume that as we think of ourselves as the Israelites, the Lord then will, in our lives, never, we will never experience affliction or suffering, that our hills will never be pricked by a thorn, nor will the brows of our heads sweat. For we know that to not be true. But even them, even though they will be taken through on dry land, It will not be the foundation 
upon which they were to rest in that knowledge that the Lord will take them through. It's, it's the Lord and his works are actually the basis of them moving forward. Turn with me to Psalm 77. We go to Psalm 77 because the psalmist alludes to the crossing of the Red Sea. And he recalls this to mind because in the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist is emitting raw thoughts. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Not only does he admit these raw thoughts, but he's also asking tough questions based on the circumstances of his life. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? I'm reminded of the last, a year ago, the last quarterly that we had here that we hosted, Pastor Sam Ranahan preached out of the psalm and he said, sometimes we need to sit in the emotion of the psalm and recognize as the psalmist approaches God in that emotion. Though there, it's going to be mixed with sin for our state as such, it is not, if it is within us to cry out to the Lord in such a way, cry out to the Lord in such a way, but conclude with the psalmist also. He says that when he asks these questions, who will be his stay? What will anchor his soul? Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And then we have what most people conclude as a meditating pause. Selah. Remember the deeds of the Lord. Remember his wonders of old. Meditate on all his work. Who, what God is great like our God. And then he recounts them, especially as it relates to waters. And he gets down to verse 19. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The Lord 
told the Israelites, go forward. Your way is in the sea. Your path is in the mighty waters. But what God is like your God? What have I done? How have I displayed myself before you already? It was where the Lord had led them and it was also related to how the Lord had led them. He had led them in in a peculiar way. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. First, we recognize His covenant faithfulness to Abraham for it was a smoking pot or a smoking furnace and a flaming pot that went through the pieces to represent the Lord and His covenant faithfulness to Israel that He would provide Abraham a people and even beyond that a seed and that through that seed He would bless all the nations but He would also provide that people a land. And so He shows Himself to the Israelites as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Here God is revealed to be with the Israelites by way of visual manifestation. Though the Lord our God, who is one, so to God, so God acts according to one divine nature, one will. And so each act of God is to not be separated essentially. So as we look at here this manifestation of the Lord or this this representation of God in the pillar of cloud by fire, uh, pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, which is also inhabited by the angel of the Lord, as it said in uh, in another verse in Exodus 14. It was the angel of the Lord that had led them. We're not to separate the acts of God essentially. For God is one God who acts according to one will. As we recognize God is one, we also recognize God eternally exists in three persons. And as Scripture does, so can we appropriate according to the person's personal properties. So the personal properties, that which distinguishes the persons of the Godhead, is that the Father is of none, The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so within our context, as John 1 says, no no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one has seen God here speaking of the Father. So as to the Father, as A.W. Pink recognizes, the promising God, the one who heard the groanings of Israel, the one who raised up a deliverer for them, reminds us of God the Father. As to the Son, just as the Lamb without spot and blemish, blemish, slain, and its blood sprinkled, securing protection and deliverance from the avenging angel, as well as the angel of the Lord who spoke out of the flaming bush, and here in the midst of the cloud and fire, typifies God's the, God the Son. And as to the Spirit, so this pillar of cloud given to Israel for their guidance across the wilderness speaks to us of God the Holy Spirit, 
amazingly full, divinely perfect are these Old Testament foreshadowings. At every point, the teachings of the New Testament is anticipated. So though we would not say that as we can recognize them as New Testament believers, that this is explicit in the Old Testament, we do not shirk to say that we can recognize as New Testament believers what was concealed in the Old is revealed in the New. And so we see that this flaming cloud, let's recognize that it is not two different clouds, but one and of the same that flames at night and is smoke in the day. You can recognize it in a way as to the Spirit's appropriating, as to the Spirit's personal property of procession or spiration. We can recognize its likeness to the Spirit. It comes graciously. The cloud was God's gracious gift to Israel. No word is said about the people asking for this guide. The cloud was God's gracious gift to Israel. No word is said about the people asking for it, yet the Lord graciously provided. It also came as a guide. What a merciful provision was this, an infallible guide to conduct them through the pathless desert. The psalmist declares that the leading as a straight path, that the leading was as a straight path. In Psalm 107, verse 7, he led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. But it wasn't the straightest path that it led, for it didn't go through the land of the Philistines. It was also not the way in which flesh and blood which would have chosen, for it came to the border of an uncrossable sea. But it was still the right way, it was still the straight way. The other way can be likened to the Spirit is that it illuminated their way. In Nehemiah 9, when the Levites were recounting the Lord's faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness, the Spirit within them identified this purpose of the cloud and fire in verse in Nehemiah 9:12. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, the light for which the, the light for them the way in which they were to go. It illuminated their way. It was also protection during the day. This cloud was for Israel's protection from the scorching heat of the sun in the sandy desert where there was no screen. That cloud must have been a welcome sight to those ex-slaves accustomed to laboring in the fields under the sun of Egypt. It was a proof to them of the almighty power of the Lord. In Psalm 105, it says, Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering. It was also a light by night. It did not depart from them all the time they were in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9 again in verses 19 and 20. You, in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness, 
The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. In all this, he was leading them compassionately and as a father. In Psalm 103, we read in verses 13 and 14, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. In a very small way, we all experience this as parents when our kids are learning to walk or they're traversing uh, something that would be treacherous to their stability. They reach up and they grab the hand of their dad or their mom and they're led across the path or across the floor we don't want to see them fall we don't want to see them come to a horrid end and so we hold them so is our father in heaven mindful that we are but dust finally he leads them also as a father leads a son turn with me to deuteronomy chapter 8 I hope what you're seeing is that this, at least in part, that the Exodus was such a seminal event in the life of, of God's people that it is constantly referred back to and referenced and, and utilized to picture forward and to show the anticipation of a future Exodus and a greater Exodus. And so in Deuteronomy 8, recounting again the gracious dealings of the Lord, It says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. There giving, uh, constituting the law of the old covenant that the commandments they were to follow and be careful to do that they may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Lord humbled Pharaoh to destruction as a judge condemns the guilty person. But to the Israelites, he humbles them as a father disciplines a son. He led them as a father leads his son. And in all this way that he was leading the Israelites, yet it was to the Egyptians, what they saw on the other side was only darkness. What was light and guidance, what was compassion and fatherly love 
was darkness to the Egyptians. This is all anticipating the blessings of the new covenant. The Lord, through Isaiah, identifies his intention in Isaiah 4, in verses 4 through 6. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her myths by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. What blessings are typified here of our new covenant in Christ? Where the Lord guided and protected the Israelites. He does so now to his church. Not in that our paths will be the straightest according to the eyes of flesh, but our paths will never be unused or unnecessary according to God's great and awesome purposes. We are the people of God, and the church is under his special providence, and this is different from the world. The Lord certainly is is the Lord over all. He guides all his creation according to his providence. But his people, those whom he, he gives his countenance, his pleasure in Christ, them he leads under special providence. Robert Hawker commenting on Acts 7.34, where Stephen is quoting Exodus 3, where the Lord tells Moses that I have heard the cry of my people. He says, and there is a world of tenderness in the expression, my people. For it not only implies a peculiarity, I knew I wasn't going to be able to say that word. Peculiarity, they're peculiar, arity, whereby they differ from all the world beside, but a property, a right, which in every point distinguishes them from every other nation under heaven. It is indeed a name to signify the Lord's right in them and their right in all that belongs to the Lord by virtue of their relationship and oneness of the nature in him. Sweetly sung the church to this union when she said, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. So like the Israelites All our steps are directed by the Lord. Yet more than that mixed multitude, where Paul teaches us that not all who were of Israel were of Israel or true Israelites. And so more than that mixed multitude, our steps are all in the one who came and experienced our weaknesses and so has walked our steps before us. Spurgeon says, as we consider the Lord's testing, the Lord's humbling, the Lord's guiding us through many difficult circumstances, knowing that none of them are wasted in the Lord, he says that untested faith may be true faith, but it is sure to be small faith. And it is likely to remain 
it's likely to remain little. As long as, as, as it is without trials. Faith never prospers so well as when all things are against her. Tempests are her trainers and bolts of lightning are her illuminators. When we as Christians enter into those difficult and even suffering circumstances and we wonder, is God going to keep me safe? Is God going to protect me? What we should fall back into is not a promise that was made, but a person who has been revealed. God is always with his people in the barren wilderness. God traveled with the Hebrews by day and by night as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He is also with us, even in a greater way, in times of distress and in turmoil and suffering. So as the people of God, secured in the Son of God, we walk though not by sight, by faith, but in the assurance that this road traveled is one that has been traveled, for our Savior has consumed our suffering in Himself. And so it is only meant for fatherly goodness for us to enter into such trials. And it is by the author who is also the finisher of our faith that we will make it through. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how obvious it is that those that have been touched by trial remain so in this life. And so this solemn reality that times of suffering are necessary for our good is both beautiful and painful. Oh Lord, that you would sustain us, that we would watch and pray to you, the anchor of our souls, knowing that you lead us as a father compassionately with an eye for our good and your glory. May we rejoice in the knowledge. May it hold us firm in our times of trouble. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.